Welcome to the Open House Podcast. Conversations exploring life, faith and hope with Stephen O'Doherty. A Chinese researcher shocked and stunned the scientific world this week when he claimed that he's helped produce the first people born with edited genetic material, twin baby girls. Hei Jiangku, a genome editing researcher at the Southern University of Science and Technology of China in Shenzhen, used the CRISPR genome editing technology to alter the genetic makeup of these embryos. They've since been born. Now, the researcher Hei says that he impregnated a woman whose partner has HIV with embryos that had been edited to disable the genetic pathway HIV uses to infect cells. Well, that would be a clear benefit for the girls concerned. But this has stunned the world because what he's done is completely contrary to all of the ethics and regulations around this research. There's doubt about whether he's done this. His work has not been peer-reviewed in scientific literature. His claims are largely promoted via YouTube. Late in the week, following that surprising announcement, he appeared at a gene editing summit in Hong Kong and explained his experiment. Closely watching all of this has been our good friend, Professor Margot Somerville. She's from Notre Dame University, where she's the Professor of Bioethics. What this technology does is give us the opportunity to alter that evolution permanently so that the alterations are passed on to all the descendants of the altered embryo and that's a massive thing to do and it raises incredible ethical issues. Can you explain to us exactly how you alter uh, genetic material using CRISPR as it's called? Yeah well it's called CRISPR-Cas9 and it's an enzyme and if you imagine it's like a little pair of genetic scissors and it can go in and it can chop bits out of genes or... So this enzyme actually alters the chemistry of the DNA somehow does it? It alters the structure of it. Right, okay. Yeah, and now... And how can you, I'm sorry to press on this but how do the scientists say that they can be so precise about that? They can't. That's one of the problems. Uh, but they're, they're, you know, CRISPR is not the last of the little sorts of scissors that you can have. They're rapidly developing other ones that they say are much more precise. So they they think they can fix that problem. Another problem is that we now know that one gene can code for, for instance, a thousand different proteins. And so if you if you alter that gene for one reason, you possibly alter a whole lot of other things that you didn't want to alter. So there's all those sorts of problems. Those are the physical problems and the risk problems with this technology. The way I put it to people is that um, we are the first humans ever who've held the power to change the essence of life itself, including human life, in the palm of our collective human hand. And we have to decide, I think most importantly, what we will not do with that even though we could do it. And I think that one of the things we should not do is alter the human germline. The way that the Europeans put it and the way that most people agreed uh, up until certainly the end of the 1990s, like the year 2000, was that 
we hold the what's called the human germline. That's all of the genes that make up the human genome. Yes, yes. That we hold that on trust for future generations, and we must not do what's called laying it waste. That is, mm. altering it. We don't. We don't own it. And we have to hold it on trust. Now, we all agreed on that when it wasn't possible to, uh, to alter it. And what happened was with the advent of CRISPR technology in uh, sort of 2013, 2014, suddenly we were faced with the possibility and suddenly a whole lot of scientists particularly said, oh, well, you know, we want to do this and we're only going to do good. Well, and, and as sure as night follows day, now a man says that he's done it and the scientific community is trying to work out whether that's right or not, but certainly the Chinese have taken it seriously and he's been banned from doing his research. It's the slippery slope argument, I suppose, isn't it? People say, well, once it's possible, Sure as night follows day, someone is going to do it one day. And then you'll ask, well, should we have even developed that technology? But you kind of can't stop the progress of that, uh, sort of locking people in a darkened room. I'm not so sure. I was thinking about this this morning that, you know, Robert Oppenheimer was one of the yep. developers of the atomic bomb and yep. the bomb that was dropped on uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he expressed that fear and dread afterwards and said he described it as the sweetness of the technology and sort of the the um, excitement mm-hmm. of the scientific research and then you wonder should it have been done and so one of the things that I think we need to think a lot more about is who decides what science will be done who funds it who wants to use it what could it be used for and we now you know we used to say up until I think it was 2003 we had a big international meeting in Budapest and it was the World Science Association and UNESCO and a whole lot of big world bodies for science and um, at that meeting it was argued that you know the sort of more traditional scientists argue well technology is value neutral and you only have to worry (laughs) you only have to worry about the ethics when people start to use it and what we changed at that meeting and we put out a declaration afterwards was that ethics must be embedded in science from its inception that means what do you do who does it? Where is it done? Who funds it? All of that is part of the ethics. And you're right. I mean, it's a bit like freedom of speech. You want freedom of science, but we still have to ask, are there some things perhaps we shouldn't do? Wow. Very profound question. Margot Somerville is with us. She is a Professor of Bioethics at the Notre Dame University, Australia. Margot, you were part of a conference also in 2015 that came out with some principles uh, eventually that were published in an important paper about how this might be used. So that there is an argument, isn't there, that says, imagine these children were uh, established to have a very serious genetic problem in their future. Um, would it be ethical to alter that so that you were doing no harm? You were making it, making their lives better. That, that's the argument, isn't it? Well, that was, you know, uh, Stephen Pinker, the um and uh, who's a psychologist at Harvard, and George Church, who's a leading world geneticist and also at Harvard, uh, 
they and I had a knockdown drag out fight about ex- <laughs> about exactly that um, because they they are arguing that we only want to do good and we'll only use it to do good and I was arguing that we should never do that uh, because I believe that it's inherently wrong mm. to design a child and no matter how much you're saying I only want to do good to that child, uh, you are still designing that child. And Jürgen Habermas, the German philosopher, he said that if if you allow the designing of children, those children are not free because they can't make themselves. Someone else has determined what they'll be. And they're not equal because the designed product is never equal to the designer. Also, you're treating them as a manufactured product. And another German philosopher, Professor, the late Professor Hans Jonas, put it this way. He said, everybody's got a right to their own unique ticket in the great genetic lottery of the passing on of life. Yes. And I follow that, although I must admit, even I have had a great deal of struggling with the thought, well, if you could get rid of the Huntington's gene and you knew that gives you a terrible mental illness and you die in your 30s or 40s and you knew that it wouldn't do any other harm and you knew then that any children born from that person who had had the Huntington gene uh, would not have it. And if, you don't, if you've got it, 50% of your children have got a risk of having it. Mm. Uh, well, you know, it seems very tough on my part to say, no, you can't do yes, that. Yes, it does. But, you, well, I don't think we're entitled to play God, Margot. That's where I would, that's where I would fall on that. You yeah. need to be compassionate towards it, those people. You need to treat them. You need to do everything you can to eliminate it in other ways to actually create a different species um, by altering the genome. Well, that's a, I think that's a bit strong. It's not a different species. <laughs> it's a different uh, person. And that's well, but not... Though, the, but this is passed on, isn't it? That's oh, what yeah. you're saying. Yeah, so you yeah, are altering yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, you're al- you're altering the human species, but the people would still be human. So you'd, they'd have to be not human. Oh, <laughs> I wonder how much bit- DNA you got to crisp up using your CRISPR before we turn out something that's not human. I mean, that's a question. Uh, well, that, that, well, that, I mean, that's really frightening. I mean, that yes. really, that would be really, really, that's really that's the territory we're in, isn't it? Oh, I mean, what we're worried about is like human-animal hybrids yeah. or putting human consciousness in a mouse or, I mean, the latest things we're looking at is these some of these same scientists have made baby mice from two male mice or from two female mice. I mean, we're looking at all sorts of variations made possible by this sort of technology. And uh, I don't know, Stephen. You know, I don't know why I got into such a difficult area of work, really. I guess we never anticipated it because, you know, I've been in it since 1975. Yes. And this would have seemed like complete science fiction yes. in 1975. We actually thought then that once we'd sorted out doing organ transplants, which we thought was mind-boggling, we wouldn't have any more ethical problems. 
And, you know, it's, it's just Well, that's just being, one thing we got wrong. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Well, Margot, anyway. we, we love speaking with you. You raise more questions than answers, but that's what this program is about, I think, really, and, and you're one of our favourite guests. Thank you so much for being with us again. It's a pleasure, Stephen. It's always nice to talk with you. Professor Margot Somerville of Notre Dame University, a bioethicist, and as she said, we hold our own germline in the palm of our hand. Or to put it another way, what God made are we going to change so profoundly that we become something other? It's a very profound question, not just for bioethics, but for religion itself. And some of these questions really, you think, can't actually be solved without having a framework for the human race, something that we all believe in, something within which you encompass this bigger question about why we all belong to each other. Best framework I know, that we're made by God to be his people, made in his image. Well, we'll follow that debate with great interest. I noticed that the uh, Telegraph newspaper in the UK is calling this man, Dr. Hay, uh, China's Dr. Frankenstein. And, of course, argument like that is also not at all helpful to sorting out these very profound questions. Discover more Open House podcasts at openhousecommunity.com.au.